This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. COVID-19 has triggered unprecedented federal spending. At $6 trillion, or more than 41000 per taxpayer, the COVID-19 relief packages already passed in the last 18 months dwarf the entire U.S. government's $4 trillion annual expenditure. Despite the enormity of that commitment, a new human infrastructure bill is taking shape on Capitol Hill that could add an additional $3.5 trillion in spending over the next 10 years. While many details remain unclear, lawmakers are reassuring taxpayers that some of the reforms built into the package will substantially help defray its cost. Among those targeted for reform is the pharmaceutical industry. The bill's advocates claim that more federal power to negotiate drug prices, coupled with limits on prices and price increases, will serve to reduce costs to Medicare and Medicaid. Critics of the bill assert that market dynamics already produce life-saving drugs in a timely and cost-efficient manner. Is this reform a necessary intervention for an industry that is exploiting the American healthcare system? Or is it a political distraction that scapegoats drug companies and does little to improve the quality or cost of healthcare. My guest today is Pioneer Institute's Senior Visiting Healthcare Fellow, Dr. Bill Smith. Dr. Smith's career includes senior staff positions for the U.S. House of Representatives leadership, the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, and the Massachusetts Governor's Office over two administrations. He spent 10 years at Pfizer as Vice President of Public Affairs and Policy and later served as a consultant to major pharmaceutical, biotechnology, and medical device companies. Bill will share with us his research on where the human infrastructure bill sits in Congress, what its outline portends for the pharmaceutical industry here in Massachusetts, and what effect it would likely have on healthcare consumers were the bill to pass. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneer Institute's fellow, Dr. Bill Smith. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by Pioneer Institute's Senior Visiting Healthcare Fellow, Dr. Bill Smith. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Bill. Thanks, Joe. Glad to be here. Now, Bill, you have written extensively on your concerns about the new, uh, what's being called the Human uh, Infrastructure Bill, uh, something that uh, has some legs in the House and Senate. Uh, It's not to be confused with the most recently passed $1 trillion infrastructure bill, which uh, addresses concerns about roads, bridges, uh, mass transit, power grid. Uh, We're talking about the newer $3.5 trillion uh, infrastructure bill that has a much bigger price tag, of course, uh, and a broader reach. Um, Why don't you share with our listeners your concerns about this new proposed House and Senate human infrastructure bill? Yeah, so this is a giant social spending bill, $3.5 trillion, um, which is more than we took in in tax revenue all during 2020, um, just for this bill alone. Um, and it has many of the programs that have been pushed over the years by Bernie Sanders, free community college, uh, free pre-K, universal pre-K, um, lots of climate programs, uh, you know, rebuilding veterans administration facilities. It's It's a... It's a catch-all gigantic spending bill that is paid for with big, big tax increases. So a near doubling of uh, capital gains, uh, a raise in the corporate tax, raise in the top rate um, uh, for income tax. 
And the one piece that concerns me, given my issue area, is that uh, Bernie Sanders, when they, the Senate passed their budget resolution, Bernie Sanders publicly indicated he plans to take $600 billion in revenue from the biopharma industry as part of this bill. Uh, now, we don't have a bill yet. In, in the Senate, they, there's just, they passed a budget resolution, which gives general instructions to the committees on what to do. Uh, but, but essentially, Bernie Sanders in this budget resolution is telling the Senate Finance Committee to take $600 billion in revenue from the life sciences industry. So your concern, though, there are many concerns, is not merely with what the, the bill uh, spends, but really where it finds the money to do the spending. Uh, where we are now, I think, as you say, it's in the uh, we we actually have some notes from the uh, finance committee, the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, Chairman Ron Wyden wrote five bullet points. I've I've read them, and um, you know, I, I want to use those as sort of a structure for um, understanding what the aspirations of this bill would be, particularly with regard to the pharma industry. As you mentioned, six hundred billion dollars is quite a bit of money. Um, and uh, it would have to come out in some way. So in reading the uh, outline, uh, let's, let's go through this a bit by bit and, and talk about um, where and how the money comes from. In my take on this, and I'm not gonna read it to our listeners, uh, it seems to want to set price controls rather than have the current system prevail. Uh, where are we now? How are prices controlled in the current system? Well, the Medicare Part D pays for most of the senior citizens' drugs in the in the federal system, and uh, the Medicare Part D program is run by private um, health insurance companies, um, and they they offer different products. Seniors look at the products, they look at the formularies, and then they sign up and they pay premiums each month. The premiums are subsidized by the taxpayer, um, but the prices are negotiated between the private sector health plans. Uh, that offer this coverage and the drug manufacturers themselves. The government has no role in it. In fact, there's a specific clause in the law saying you can't, the government can't get involved in this negotiation. Um, and what most of the bills in Congress, what Senator Wyden has indicated and what uh, the House bill, which is H.R. 3, uh, Speaker Pelosi's bill, they, they want to have the government intervene in this negotiation and actually set the prices. And then they do it in different ways in the House and Senate. Uh, they use the term negotiate, but you don't really negotiate with the government, as you know, Joe. When the government <laughs> steps in, they tell you what the price is going. Take it or leave it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh -huh. You're either you're you're, you're either uh, going to accept the government price or you will get hammered. Um, and uh, so it's not really a negotiation; it's really a price setting um, mm -hmm. scheme. And this is how they they want to achieve all this savings in 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 the Medicare program, and then use that money to fund other programs in the $3.5 trillion bill. Now, I wouldn't be against making modifications in, in drug pricing in Part D if you were to help the patients out, lower their out-of-pocket costs, or do something to improve the Medicare Part D program. But that's largely what's not going on here. What's going on here is they're taking $600 billion from the industry so they can spend it on all these other things. Um, and that's largely what's going on. So let's get a little bit deeper for our, our listeners who are not economics majors and they don't understand sort of how prices uh, um, are set in a, in, a, in a free market, right? We've got um, consumers who uh, choose private providers who then negotiate with the drug companies, right? So if the drug companies, if the providers, the um, plan providers aren't effective, in other words, they, they are not 
effective in reducing prices from the drug producers, right? They they roll over and pay whatever the producers want. They would then pass that price on to their their consumers and the consumers would say, this is too high, I'm gonna choose something else. So there's an incentive uh, for those providers to negotiate in a, in a firm way and to get the best possible price. So there is a dynamic, there's a feedback loop going on there. That's what you would consider not a perfect market, but a fairly open, clear, transparent market. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm a big fan of our private commercial health insurance industry because as you said, they have the right incentives in place. They need to keep costs low, because if costs spiral out of control, the premiums get too high and they lose customers. So they have good incentives to keep costs low, but they also have good incentives to keep quality high. So they want to cover the latest and best drugs. They want to make sure they're available on their formularies or their customers are going to go somewhere else. So those are a healthy set of incentives. Keep costs down, but also allow access to innovative products. What tends to happen in these government-controlled healthcare systems is they don't have those incentives in place. They only have the incentives to cut costs. They, you get a fixed amount for the National Health Service budget, and year to year, you got to meet that budget. And if a new drug comes along and it's going to cost $500 million, well, it's not in the budget this year, this year so we're going to have to kick the can down the road and pay for it sometime in the future. And what you find in these, these government-controlled healthcare systems is People do not get access to the latest and newest and best drugs very quickly. Um, they can wait months, if not years, to get access to those drugs because the, the, the budgets are fixed. Um, right. Americans get access to most new drugs, 87% of new drugs within three months of their approval. And if you look at some countries like Australia, they wait on average 20 months and they don't even get access to half the new drugs. So, you know, you get what you pay for. <laughs> you, can, you can cut drug prices if you want, but the, the, the trade-off is going to be you're going to have access to a lower quality set of drugs. I might also add that uh, much of the world, in a sense, is cross-subsidized by our system. In other words, because we do pay for innovation, uh, they can enjoy the benefit of that innovation largely later, months later, years later, but eventually they get it. If uh, essentially our innovative system, one that I think, you know, well, I'd like to bring this up later, produced phenomenal vaccines and phenomenal time, uh, that sort of um, massive resource for innovation might be dampened were they not to have the potential to be rewarded for innovation. In other words, if we've fixed prices, we remove a financial incentive for innovation. Is it that simple? Yeah, it's that simple, but it's also the, the nature of the business model for the biopharma industry makes it highly susceptible to what you can call freeloading on price. Um, you know, if, if the government of Australia, for example, wanted to buy 10,000 pickup trucks from Ford and they called the CEO of Ford and they said, you know what, uh, we want to buy thousands of pickup trucks. Um, we know they cost about $50,000 in the United States, but we only want to pay 30. Well, the CEO of Ford would do the math right away and know, wait a minute, it cost me almost $40,000 to manufacture a pickup truck. So I can't sell these to Australia for $30,000. I'll lose $10,000 on every pickup. So that's, that's a business sector that has high manufacturing costs. The biopharma industry does not have high manufacturing costs, just the opposite. Typically, a pill only costs a couple pennies to make. Where the costs are intense is in the R&D process. So the money's already been spent. So to use the Australia analogy, if the CEO, if the, the prime minister of Australia called the CEO of Pfizer and said, we want to buy your new pill, but we don't want to pay $10 like pay in the U.S. We want to pay only $4. That's a very difficult decision for the CEO of Pfizer because he knows he's not getting a market price, a fair price. 
a price that if you had a free market, it would that would rise to the top. He, the Australian government is freeloading, knowing that the manufacturing costs are so low for Pfizer that he might as well take them, take what he can get, even if it's not a market-based price. The nature of the pharmaceutical industry with low manufacturing costs makes them highly susceptible to this kind of freeloading in a way that other con- uh, business sectors that have high manufacturing costs would not be. I see. But of course, again, I don't want to keep belaboring the point, but were we to disincentivize that new innovation, in other words, all the money is going to R&D and it's uncertain. If we were to take away uh, the benefit, uh, the risk uh, of spending all that money for a drug that may or may not work uh, goes away, uh, we would effectively turn off the spigot, not just for American consumers, but for the Australians in your model. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I see. Uh, the Australians are somewhat subsidized by the Americans, but nonetheless, they benefit from the technology. I see. Now, uh, again, let me ask, forgive this is me if this is a, a dumb question, but who would be expert enough to know what the government thinks should be charged for a drug? You know, I've got drug XYZ and the government thinks it's too high. Uh, who has the wisdom to understand what it ought to be? Now, yeah, this is a, a sore point for me, Joe, because I think there are a lot of people, smart people in healthcare, and that they, because they're so smart, they think they can figure it out. They can figure out what the price of a drug should be, and and you know we'll, we'll put build a model and we'll put these factors into the model, and and presto, we'll press a button, and then we'll get the number. Um, I don't think there's anybody who's quite that smart. <laughs> um, you know, I think what you really want is a marketplace that makes decisions where uh, patients, providers, uh, insurance companies, manufacturers. All those players in the market come together and they say, oh, wait a minute, this drug works in this population really well, so we can charge a higher price there, but it doesn't work so well in this population, so let's restrict it there. You know, the market tends to sort these things out in a way that some wise man can't, uh, because the wise man can't consider all the different factors that, and all the little decisions that go to deciding what to, co- what to charge for a drug and when to cover a drug. Um, so I'm a believer in the market that, that you know, uh, particularly commercial health insurance companies do have a way to figure out what the proper price would be. And they negotiate with manufacturers and they get pressured by doctors and patient advocates and others. And that's the way it should be. Now, uh, uh, no one's a, uh, a, a greater advocate of uh, market dynamics than I am. But I'll just let me push back a little bit and say um, perhaps drugs are different from uh, uh, pickup trucks or fishing poles or swimming pools in that um, when we need them, we need them. In other words, our marginal propensity to spend uh, is uh, infinite, but we don't have the ability to spend, meaning uh, we have uh, cancer, our life is on the line, uh, the drug costs a million dollars. Um, if without any government intervention, how will I possibly be able to pay um, for this unfortunate event in my life? Yeah, no, uh, Joe, that's that's a fair question. And that issue could come to the fore 20 years from now. But in the data that I'm seeing now, what's happening is many blockbuster drugs that are costing the healthcare system billions of dollars are going off patent. And that is causing enormous savings in the healthcare system. So while there are de- drugs being approved for rare diseases that are in the million-dollar range or the $300,000 range, really sticker shock prices, they are affordable under the current system because the patent expirations are providing so much headroom uh, for um, to pay for these other drugs. Uh, the, 
IQVIA, which is one of my favorite uh, economics uh, pharma industry consulting firms, estimates that over the next five years, the system is going to save $166 billion uh, from patent expirations, from drugs going generic. And, you know, that that $166 billion will pay for a lot, a lot of expensive rare disease drugs. And we're not, in the next five years, we're not expected to see drug cost growth in double digits. It's expected that it'll be in the low single digits. So right now, there's no problem. There may be a problem in the future, and I don't want to be Pollyannish about this. There are people who have poor health insurance and have high coinsurance costs, and those people need to get helped. And that's a fixable problem. That's, that's you know, that that's 2 3% of the patient population that has these very high coinsurance requirements. And if they get hit with a $100,000 drug, they might get a $10,000 bill. I, I, I'm very sympathetic to those people, but that's fixable. We don't have to take over the entire drug industry <laughs> to, to help these people out because the, the number of these people is not great. Most people are saving a lot of money from generics. When they go generic, they may not even have a copay. Um, but there are a small slice of patients that do get terrible diseases that require very expensive drugs. And right now they're being charged high coinsurance. And, and that shouldn't happen. Insurance should not be to have the sick subsidize the premiums of the healthy. Uh, insurance should be when you have a catastrophic event, the insurance comes and covers. Sure. So I want to, again, put a fine point on, on what you just said in that um, as the system works now, if you do come up with an extraordinary drug and you want to charge a million dollars, you can do so only for a short while. So the uh, until it goes generic and then market forces kick in, you don't have a monopoly on it any longer. It can be produced by others and market forces bring it back to reasonable costs. Um, and your your observation is that well, that might be a problem because the copay could be enormous. But ultimately, we need to have that incentive to get the drug in the first place before it can become generic. And, and, and your measurement of that savings is the difference between its initial cost and its price once it's become generic. Is that Precisely. right? Precisely. Once, once it's, while it's on patent, the, the producer, the manufacturer has a kind of a monopoly ability to price it, but that only lasts for on average about seven years. And then when it goes generic, you suddenly have a, a great technology that only costs pennies. So people may not agree that that's, that's the system we have. I think the system is a pretty good system because it brings all these new innovations and those innovations ultimately become very inexpensive. Um, now, people could disagree. They, people could say, well, we should short, shorten patent life. There are things we could, should, could and should do. And, and I, I respect some of these opinions, but um, I, I like the current system, where, which encourages innovation and also brings about very cost-effective technologies when patents expire. So, Bill, um, we've been talking about the Senate's uh, ideas on how to control drug prices. Uh, Nancy Pelosi in the House also has some ideas on the best ways to tackle the high cost of drugs. It's a little bit different. Uh, I think it's been around for a little bit longer. Um, how, how is it similar? How is it different from what we've been talking about in the Senate? Yeah, that, Joe, that's a good question. The House actually has a bill and has language, and it's been out there for a while, supported by Speaker Pelosi. Um, the Senate... The Wyden, uh, Senator Wyden, the chairman of the Finance Committee, just has put out five vague principles where he basically says the government's going to help set prices in Medicare. The government's going to penalize companies that raise prices above the inflation rate. He puts together these five principles that are going to guide whatever legislation he ends up drafting. But there's no bill out there in the Senate. In the House, there's a very specific bill. And their goal of the, the, the House bill is to set drug prices in the Medicare program by using a basket of, of 
countries, mostly in Europe, who have socialized healthcare systems and reference price, the Medicare prices to those prices. Um, and the CBO estimates that, that if you use those European prices as a benchmark for Medicare prices, you'd have to cut Medicare prices between 50 and 75%. So it would take a significant hit. And Pelosi wants to start by targeting 25 of the most highly selling drugs, those uh, 25 top selling drugs, and then expand it to the top 50 selling drugs. Um, I, I have so many problems with this bill, I can't even um, go into them. But basically what she's doing is targeting the most popular medicines that are taken by the most patients um, and targeting them and, and reducing their price. Um, I just uh, th that from an innovation perspective and an access perspective, that's highly problematic. Uh, and just uh, coming back to an earlier um, uh, point we made, uh, we talked about Australia enjoying a cross subsidy or a, um, uh, the benefit of our, our innovation and in saying buying the pickup truck at $40,000 instead of $30,000 uh, because the marginal cost of the pills is, is low. Um, would it be the case? Um, let me let me ask it more directly. Why is European price so low? Is it in fact that we've innovated, we've charged a lot of American consumers, and those Europeans are able to enjoy the same drug at a lower price because the marginal cost that we sell it to them is much lower. Um, so the marginal price is lower. So it's a full circle. We we uh, cross subsidize and then get whacked for the success of that cross subsidy. Precisely. And what the Europeans are doing is freeloading. Mm -hmm. This should have been a, a U.S. trade representative issue for decades. And we should have been in trade negotiations with them and say, you know what, we're not buying French wine unless you pay what is somewhat fair market price for our pharmaceutical products. Um, and uh, President Trump started to do that towards the end of his tenure, but uh, even he didn't get it quite that clearly. Um, and But I, I, I think that, that, that it's successive administrations of both parties have have drop the ball on this. Um, they should have been represented American consumers and they should have been telling consumers in Europe, you can't freeload off our innovation any longer. It seems ironic that uh, we would in have the our pharma companies hurt by that uh, unfair trade practice. Yeah, and, and, and we're seeing, we see fewer products because these Europeans are not paying what they should. There'd be more R&D going on if they were paying closer to market prices and we'd be getting more products for Americans and others. I see. Now, a lot has been made about how much uh, the US health system pays for pharma. I guess implied in there is it's paying too much. Um, uh, and we're having this legislation come out, you know, in, in the uh, tail end of COVID when arguably the, the uh, pharma industry has rescued us all. Do you see uh, the pharma industry, the, the general price, the general cost to the, the public being too high or too or just about right or too low? How, how do you see um, uh, the pharma industry exploiting or not exploiting um, uh, healthcare consumers uh, as we are right now? Yeah, well, uh, there are different estimates about the, what percentage of healthcare costs are due to prescription drugs. Uh, I think the best estimate is about 14% of the healthcare dollar is spent on prescription drugs. Uh, the the healthcare, health insurance industry says it's closer to 20. The pharmaceutical trade rep, trade association says it's closer to 10. I think my best guess is it's about 14 or 15%. So that's not a great deal. <laughs> that's not the majority. Um, and 
moreover, it's where most of the innovation is coming from. You know, a long-term care facility 25 years ago looks like a long-term care facility now. You know, a lot of the innovation is happening in just that 14 or 15 percent of the healthcare market. So I just I don't see it as a predatory industry. I see it as a very successful American innovative industry. Um, and it's it's brought some of the greatest healthcare advances in, in recent decades that have come out of this 14 per 15 percent of spending. Um, so I don't know why you'd go after it other than you need the money. <laughs> and that's that what seems to be going on, on Capitol Hill. In research for this uh, show together, I, I, I turned up a survey, 2020 survey that said 84% of seniors found their Part D premiums affordable and 93% found their plan convenient to use. Nine in 10 seniors are satisfied with their Part D coverage. So um, again, this is a, a solution uh, looking for a problem. It seems Part D is actually uh, quite popular with those who use it. Um, let's uh, then uh, imagine, okay, let's put, put aside the, uh, the, the the quality and the utility of the current system and, and, and walk into this brave new world where the government sets prices. You and I talked earlier about uh, concerns about how one uses the formula for determining what's a fair price and uh, uh, how one understands fair. We talked about something called quality adjusted life years, meaning uh, a drug that serves an older person is less valuable than a younger person based on the number of years of benefit that that drug will offer each respective patient. Are you concerned that these price controls will uh, reintroduce or harness this sort of logic whereby uh, drugs for younger people are valued more than drugs for older people? Yeah, I think that would be a big problem if that, the quality became the reimbursement standard for uh, drugs in the United States. It would skew R&D spending in certain directions uh, because the quality judges the value of a drug on how many life years it gives, how, how, how longevity, well, how much longevity does it give, plus how does it improve the quality of life? Uh, and you might think, oh, that's common sense. Drugs that make, make you live longer and live better should be valued more. Yeah, I think that's fair uh, in a certain regard. Um, I could talk in great detail about some of the problems with it. But the real problem with the quality, though, is that they put a value on an actual dollar value on a year of life lived in good health. They say it's about in the United States, the ICER, the, the body that uses the quality here in the United States for cost-effectiveness studies, says the a year of human life lived in good health is worth about $150,000. And then they look at drugs and how long, how, how, how long they make you live and how they improve your quality of life. And then they try to decide based on that $150,000 threshold whether the drug meets that standard. Uh, the problem with that is that the $150,000 is kind of an arbitrary standard, right? Why not a million? Why not a thousand? Why not a penny? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And so if you're trying to control costs in a government-run healthcare program like Medicare, you can address, adjust that threshold up and down to get the savings that you want. And it's somewhat arbitrary because... Mm -hmm. Why 150000 Again, if it were one of my own children, I would say their value of one year of their life lived in good health is worth $10 million to me, not $150,000. Mm -hmm. So the, the the, there's an arbitrariness and a subjectiveness that creeps into these cost-effectiveness studies based on the assumptions that they make. And, and I don't think they're terribly objective tools for measuring the value of drugs. I'd much rather have the marketplace do it. I'd rather have the oncologist and the the cancer patient's family and the cancer patient themselves and the advocacy group 
and the insurance company, all these actors getting together to decide which drugs are the best and most cost effective. It seems to me almost Orwellian to sort of convert people from value consumers to cost centers, which is to say, um, if the government is running out of money or needs to find some money somewhere, uh, they as a third party are valuing your life and determining what drugs you're entitled to buy. Uh, that would that should I think cons- uh, concern a lot of our listeners. I would think. Um, uh, I want to m- move on to then if if these price controls are imposed, uh, you know, the pharma business is is big in the United States. We've talked about that, but it's particularly big here in in Massachusetts. I want to read some uh, statistics. I, I again I, in my research nationwide, the pharmaceutical industry directly or indirectly accounts for over four million jobs across the U.S. and in every state, according to uh, T Economy. T Economy Partners LLC. This includes 800,000 direct jobs, 1.4 million indirect jobs, and 1.8 million induced jobs, uh, which include retail and service jobs that are supported by spending from pharmaceutical workers and spenders. Um, The average wage for a pharmaceutical worker in 2017 was $126,587. So there's lots of people employed in this industry and they're well paid. What do you think the effect of uh, this kind of $600 billion uh, grab from that industry would have on on nationwide pharmaceutical and of course in Massachusetts here. Well, it, it would have its biggest impact on the big pharma companies first, because if you have a lot of products that you're selling to the government, Medicare, and they slash those prices by 50 or 75 percent, you're going to take a revenue hit, and those companies are going to be laying people off. There's no doubt about that. Uh, pharmaceutical sales in the United States are about $450 billion a year. And this bill would propose taking $60 billion a year, almost 15% of revenue, just right out of the companies right away. So the most immediate and, and harmful effect would be on some of these big pharma companies that have products that they sell to Medicare. But, you know, if you're one of your listeners is a, an exec in a small biotech company and he's got a couple of products in phase two and phase three and he's not selling to Medicare, maybe he shouldn't be as worried about this. And I would... I would warn against that attitude because I do believe that if uh, these price controls were enacted, what every small biotech company wants to become is a large biotech company and selling products to Medicare, right? Part B Medicare, maybe an oncology products that's infused. And so you have a lot of private investors, private equity and, and venture and other people investing in these smaller biotech companies. And what are they going to think when the prices of the ultimate products in Medicare are going to be cut 50 to 75 percent. I mean, uh, you might start thinking about investing in a different sector. Uh, so you could have a lot of financing dry up for the smaller biotech companies as a result of this, um, these changes, uh, because they they make, they make it a much more unattractive market. Um, so I, I think, you know, one of a friend of mine in the industry said if the $600 billion number in the bill stands, it will be a nuclear winter for the industry. Now, I'm not sure I'd go that far. That seems like it's a bit of hyperbole, but it would be highly damaging, and not just to the big pharma companies, but to the smaller biotechs and startups, because I, I think it would make this a very much less attractive sector to, to invest in. So to put a fine point on that, many of these small firms, many that, that are our neighbors here in Boston, Cambridge, all around uh, this uh, wonderful technology uh, hub, um, they're largely financed by private investors who are hoping that someday uh, the, the, these few drugs that they're developing will 
project or lift them into the large firm or be acquired by a large firm. Uh, and if and if that's not possible, if ultimately they can enjoy uh, large profits from this innovation, uh, this this risk, they'll just say, hey, look, I'll invest in something else in uh, in uh, some other technology. Uh, and so those smaller firms won't exist in the first place. Precisely. There's no there's no ironclad rule why private equity has to invest in life sciences companies. Uh, they invest in life sciences companies because if they they hit a good product and they get it through the FDA, they're going to have a great payday. And if it doesn't look like they're going to get a good payday when they get their drug approved and it goes out on the market, they, they may say, well, you know what, I'm going to look at energy or some other sector because this, this sector is no longer profitable. Um, and I think that's the longer term worry. That's what I worry more about for the Massachusetts and the Cambridge economies, where you have so many of these really creative startup companies in biotech. Um, I worry about their 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 capital drying up. Now, uh, a little bit of uh, inside baseball on how Washington works. Again, this came on the heels. Uh, I said in our intro, uh, we spent about $6 trillion already on COVID relief and on infrastructure. This is another three and a half trillion. Uh, it's no secret. It's it's not in the sort of, uh, wouldn't fall into the bipartisan camp. It's more of a, a, a democratically supported bill. Uh, it's 2021. We're a year away from 2022 when um, both the House and the Senate may change hands and become uh, Republican uh, majorities. So this seems to be something that would have to happen between now and 2022. Where do you see it now in the um, in the evolution? Uh, is it likely to be passed? Is it likely to be passed soon? And um, where are we now? Uh, well, I'm not I'm not a lobbyist anymore. If I had my lobbying hat on, I could probably give you a very firm uh, prediction on this. Um, it's it's a little bit it's bit of, it's on thin ice a little bit is is my view. You have some moderates both in the Democratic Party and the, both the House and Senate that are worried this bill might go too far in spending, might spur a rise in inflation. And we've seen people like Larry Summers who are clearly on the Democratic side of the aisle, warning about this bill that it, it could cause inflation. I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert on this, uh, but you know we took in about three and a half trillion dollars in revenue last year. And we spent about six and a half trillion. I just don't know how that's sustainable year after year, taking three or four trillion dollar deficits and continuing to add and add and add to the public debt. So um, I could see it going either way. I could see the Democrats getting very disciplined and saying we've got to do this to save the White House. Or I could see some moderate Democrats saying, you know what, the White House is pretty weak after this Afghanistan thing. I, I'm not afraid of them anymore. I got to buck them on this. Um, it's, it's, it's very hard to predict at this point. And I think, you know, if your listeners are interested in this kind of thing, this is the week to pay attention in the House, because this is the week the has, House may take up the budget resolution that the Senate passed last time. And we may see the outlines of, of, of the support level in the House for this $3.5 trillion. Well, we have um, nine members of the House who come from Massachusetts. Many, uh, I hope uh, all our listeners are in, uh, at least we have one or two in every district in Massachusetts. Uh, our listeners don't like to just listen and, uh, and, and complain. They like to take action. What could our listeners do in this critical week to affect the, uh, at least this provision in this new infrastructure bill? Yeah, well, I mean, personally, I've been a little disappointed at the reaction of the Massachusetts uh, delegation. I'm not going to name names, but... There's a lot of support for this $3.5 trillion among members of the Massachusetts delegation, and they have not, as Senator Menendez, for example, has in New Jersey, he's a Democrat, they have not expressed concern about 
what the bill is going to do to the biopharma industry. Senator Menendez has taken the position that more of this money should be devoted to offsetting patient out-of-pocket costs and doing other things to improve the Medicare Part D program, not just taking the money and spending it on other things. And, you know, uh, if, if I were a constituent uh, in Massachusetts, I'd be calling my congressman or senator and I'd be saying, you know what, first of all, this bill cuts too deep in the pharma industry. And second, the money should be devoted, any of the savings should be devoted to improving the Part D program itself, lowering patient out-of-pocket costs and doing other things to improve the actual drug program, not just taking the money and spending it elsewhere. I see. So we want to protect those people who do get hit with big co-pays for uh, extraordinary uh, medicines, uh, but we don't want to have a nuclear winter here in uh, in the hub. Yes, uh, yes okay. very much. All right, great. Um, so uh, I think you've already answered this question. I, we're getting close to the end of our time together, but if you were king for a day uh, and you were trying to re reform um, an industry you know so well, the pharma industry, you've already suggested we could use some of the money to help supplement or, uh, I guess, subsidize the large copays for those people who do need these high-cost drugs. What else would you do? What would what you know as, as a market advocate? What would you change or like to see changed to to um, ensure that we get the most value for our innovative uh, pharma buck? Yeah, uh, one area that gives me concern um, is uh, so-called biosimilars. We're seeing many, many more biologic and specialty drugs approved by the FDA. Um, and these drugs are very complicated. They're, they're large molecule drugs. They're difficult to manufacture, but they're increasing in the amount of, of uh, the percentage of drug costs are, are going to these biologic drugs. And years ago, Congress passed a measure to encourage biosimilar drugs, meaning kind of the, the biologic version of a generic drug, although it's, it's not technically generic. It's not an exact copy. It's a similar molecule to come into the market and help help undercut the cost, give some competition to these biologic drugs that are that are increasingly costly in, in this health system. Those biosimilar drugs have not caught on as well in the United States as they have in Europe and other places. And that's partly due to the complicated rebate structure that we have in, in the U.S. market, where uh, drug manufacturers can pay a rebate to a health insurance plan to keep their drug on formulary and on an easy tier and easily accessed and cheaply accessed by the patient. And what's happening is that a lot of the brand companies are, are rebating so aggressively um, to keep their drug on formulary that they're undercutting the ability of the biosimilar to get into the market. And I think we, we, we really need a healthy biosimilars market um, because an increasing share of these drugs are biologics. And we're not seeing the same level of cost savings that we're seeing with small molecule drugs when a drug goes generic. Um, so th that's one area I'd like to see. But more, more important than anything is, is this uh, out-of-pocket cost issue. You know, uh, we've talked about this before, Joe, but what's cranking out of biotech and pharma laboratories now are specialty drugs for small pop smaller populations. You know, lung cancer isn't lung cancer anymore. It's lung cancer with this genome type. And so you create a drug for 50,000 patients where ordinarily you, years ago, you would have been trying to create a, a drug that, that treated hundreds of thousands of patients. And those smaller drugs, drugs for smaller populations are going to be more expensive. And the way the health plans have reacted to this explosion of, of expensive drugs for smaller populations is by increasing coinsurance and out-of-pocket costs. 
And as I said, that's very problematic uh, for a patient who has high coinsurance requirements and gets a dreaded disease and requires an expensive therapy. Um, I just think the, the benefit design of health plans ought to be improved to help this small subset of the population. That's very well said. Uh, to cap off our show, I just want to say that the uh, the notes from uh, uh, Senator Wyden on the uh, on his uh, five points mentioned a topic that we had covered in an earlier show, the uh, Agihelm for uh, Alzheimer's as a sort of a, a, a poster child for a drug that costs a lot and does nothing. Uh, since our show, we've had some uh, developments that that drug has had uh, competition for its $56,000 price tag. Do you want to bring our listeners, uh, our dedicated listeners who listen to that show up to speed on where Agihelm and, and drugs like it are, uh, are going? Yeah, I think Agihelm is going to run into the same um, uh, problem that uh, the, a lot of the hep C drugs were, ran into when they first came out. They charged a premium price when they first hit the market, but then a whole bunch of other drugs came on, follow-on drugs, and the price went down and down and down. Um, and was cut substantially. And all the uh, the doom and gloom predictions about hep C drugs taking over the entire Medicaid budget, all those proved to be wrong. Um, and I think you're seeing something similar in Adjuhelm. First of all, a lot of people aren't covering it. But second of all, you have a few other uh, drugs to treat the amyloid plaque, which is what the Adjuhelm does, that are, that are close to getting approval, Lilly's drug being the most important one. And my guess is that's gonna come at a much lower price than the 56,000 in order to grab as much share as they can um, and to get, get on formulary. So, uh, you know, I think, I think the, the Adjuhelm issue is not as, as, as uh, people hyperventilated when it was approved saying this is gonna break everybody's bank. I just, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. It's either not gonna be covered or it's gonna get competition. One or the other is gonna drive down the, the costs. Well, good. Uh, again, uh, a recap of an earlier show. I appreciate uh, I want to come full circle and, and touch on that. So I appreciate you joining us today at, on Hubwonk, Bill. I think this is your fourth time on the show, maybe fifth. Uh, um, and your expertise is, is welcome. I, I'm sure our, our listeners enjoyed what you had to say. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there's several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would help if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. It's also wonderful if you are able to share us with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. <music>